You're listening to Deep Cut. I'm Olson Lai. And I'm Benjamin Yap. And I'm Eli Sands. Each episode, we're going to talk about two movies from one director. The first movie will be a popular or well-known film, and the second movie will be a personal favorite that is lesser known. And that's why it's called Deep Cut. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) We'll also talk about each director's life and career so we can bring in some context that may help us view the movies as they wanted us to. So this podcast came about because we're three friends who met as undergraduate students at a film program. We were big movie geeks. I feel like we, like out out of, I, I guess like all of our friends, we were the ones who nerded out about, I don't know, indie directors, foreign directors, that sort of like annoying bullshit that most people <laughs> don't like. But like the three of us kind of gravitated to like similar types of directors. I'm also very interested in the kind of directors that the others were interested in as well. And I think that's why we really love to talk about movies and also fight about movies. <laughs> about why one's better and one's not, or also why one's good or not good. Yeah, many yeah. a tear was shed trying to defend a movie that <laughs> I enjoyed <laughs> and that one of these two <laughs> did not. I know that for me, the two of you have really helped me uh, expand the types of movies that I know about and help shape my taste. Uh, I can think of a number of moments where one of you showed me something that was an aha kind of moment. I agree. I can say the same. I can say the same too. And hopefully this will be some aha moments for our hopeful listeners. Yeah. (laughs) I guess the three of us are also using this as our own personal opportunity to expand um, the directors that we watch and the types of films that we watch as well. So maybe let's talk about the director we're going to be talking about today. So we all kind of chose for this episode, Hirokazu Koreeda. So what movies are we looking at? Um, well, as the popular choice, uh, we chose 2018's Shoplifters. And for our deep cut, we chose 1998's Afterlife. Has anyone seen any of the other movies? Um, for me, I've seen Still Walking, Actually, I've seen many of his movies. Um, Still Walking, Our Little Sister, Distance. We've all seen that together. Yes, um, a fun time. Yes. Uh, let's see. I've seen After the Storm. I've seen Like Father, Like Son. Yeah. I mean, Corey has had a, a really long career. <laughs> he has. And it's it's a really wonderful and deeply compassionate career. And normally, one of us is going to choose a director to bring in and choose a a deep cut to bring in. But for this first episode, we all kind of chose Corey Ada together because one, we we all love his movies. And two, it was he was his movies were definitely one of the forces that brought us together as friends. I remember Ben uh in I guess 2015, uh an early moment in our friendship being you taking me to go see our little sister at the Angelica in New York City. And like, that was definitely a moment of, whoa, I love this. How can I see more of this? Was that the year that it came out? Was it like a retrospective or was it? No, it came out that year. Uh, I I think, I think it came out that year. That's incredible. And I think when I saw that, like I hadn't seen that many. No, I think I've seen a bunch of Koreeda, but like, that was such a sweet, sweet movie. I was just. I think it's a very underrated Koreeda movie. I really like that movie. I did not get a chance to rewatch it before this podcast, but like, I really want to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And 
in our group chat, um, Ben is still called Hirokazu Koreeda. Um. <laughs> I forgot about that because I haven't <laughs> seen my own name for a while. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fun fact, I wrote a whole essay about Koreeda. I made a, a video essay about Koreeda as well. So yeah, I mean, I really like the guy. I mean, not everything he's done has been a hit. Like, And I've not seen some of the stuff that are apparently like more of, more of a dud. Like, apparently Air Doll is not that great. But I remember, like, the third murder is not that great, to, at least mm. to me. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, we can get into that, but, like, there's shades of the third murder in uh, Shoplifters as well. Ooh, yeah. that's a blind so, spot I mean, for me. Yeah. Same. So I think you prepared some information for us, Eli. So maybe want I'm to ready to learn. That. Great. <laughs> yeah, so each episode we'll sort of do a little overview, hopefully not too Wikipedia-y, of the director's career and life and some of their interests. So, Hirokazu Koreeda was born on June 6, 1962 in Tokyo. He doesn't talk about his upbringing much in interviews, but it sounds like he, his family was not very affluent. Uh, he, he had two parents and two older sisters. Around the time of the release of Shoplifters, he says, quote, I grew up in a family where there were six people living in a very small space, and because I often didn't have a space, like the boy in the movie, I would sleep in the closet and peek out between the doors. That was my personal space because I had nowhere else to go. And I did have a grandfather who would go to the entranceway and cut his nails. Small details like that definitely come from my own experience as a child. And I've included them because I find that it kind of anchors the film a bit. End quote. So he started out his career as an assistant director, then director for TV documentaries. And he directed his first TV doc. Uh, which was called Lessons from a Calf in 1991. And Wait, that explains a lot about his like his start in documentary filmmaking. Um, it does. And also the types of topics that he focused on as a documentary director are like foreshadowing for the types of things that he cares about in his fiction films. Ooh. So like he talked, one of his docs is about a man who experiences short-term memory loss due to a hospital's error in a surgery and another is about the first man in Japan to publicly announce that he had AIDS. So I, I don't know about you guys, but like that, that definitely feels like it makes sense knowing his later movies. Yeah, I, I guess he was like very interested in similar kinds of stories as his career progressed. I mean, especially definitely when we get into talking about an afterlife and shoplifters, like both of them are definitely very much influenced by documentary and like, a lot of his films are also, you know, based on real-life events. Shoplifters, um, more based on real-life circumstances, but then, like, nobody knows based on actual events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he, I think he, he likes to draw on, like, you know, real things. And I think he's also talked about, like, how uh, people asked him, like, I, like compare... Like, some people have compared his book to a little bit of, like, poverty porn, but I think he's more of a more sensitive director that is able to kind of take that subject matter and, like, you know, treat it with more nuance and a lot of respect to kind of make it not feel like this kind of poverty parade for just to get people crying and stuff like that. Agreed. And I, I, I have some pieces of research and things he said around the release of shoplifters that speak to that. So we'll get into that a little bit later. So his first fiction film is in 1995. It's called Mabaroshi. It's a really wonderful and sensitive film about a woman who loses her husband and then remarries and forms a new family. And it premiered at the Venice Film Festival. I love that movie. That's like a top three Koreeda movie for me. I think it's Agreed. absolutely gorgeous. 
like it's, I, it might be his prettiest is. looking movie. When I was doing my own research, I was just looking at like like which films did he write? Um, he's written all his feature films, like his narrative features, except for Maburoshi. That oh. makes all. That also makes a lot of sense. I I do feel like a lot of uh, like a big influence from like the Taiwanese new wave. Like I get a lot of hints of like Ho Shaoshen. Mm-hmm. Um, not not even in just like the cinematography, but how like the the story flows and um, the connection with the past and the present. Um, I I just feel there's like yeah, it, it it's not a typical Koreeda film in terms of like subject matter. Still love it. Mm. <laughs> so then after Maburoshi, he makes thirteen more movies before Shoplifters, and they often deal with. Themes like family dynamics, struggles with poverty, has been mentioned, and grief or loss. His style tends to be very gentle, full of long, static takes that forefront performance over overtly stylized directing or editing. And a word that often gets tossed around a lot, but I think definitely applies to his filmography, is very humanist, right? He's very, he's very compassionate, and he really cares about his subjects. Yeah. I think everyone can agree, like on that whether or not you like his films or not um you can definitely see the care that he has for his characters yes i mean the stories that he tells like they they pretty much do not have like true villains or heroes they're they're really much very much about you know everyday people going about their lives and like the more kind of mundane dramas that they go through and i think that that kind of makes them a little bit more like easier to kind of connect with, um, despite the fact that they don't have that kind of strong moral kind of alignment like most more like mainstream movies have. But like right. because they kind of look like your own lives and like you understand the situations people are, then you can kind of really get invested in in the characters. Yeah, it's a lot about why people act the way they do, which doesn't make someone good or evil. And I yeah. appreciate that sensitivity and respect for just the way people are. It's so beautiful, Eli. <laughs> <laughs> Very deep. <laughs> you know, deep. deep Shedding deep a tear. Oh. Deep cut. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, Roll credits. We set the title. <laughs> this is going to be one of many deep cut jokes. We're going to get ready. <laughs> okay, so Eli. In 28- uh, yeah, sorry. No. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna lead it to you. Sorry, we're gonna cut this out. Or not. In 2018, Shoplifters wins the Palme d'Or and uh, it is nominated for the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. He says he's influenced by Ken Loach and Mikio Naruse. Uh, and as Wilson mentioned, I think definitely some influence from the Taiwanese New Wave. And it, I, I wanna I wanna close out this section with a quotation that he said that I think kind of sums up a very important part of his ethos and something that is in almost all of his movies. He says, quote, it is important to have a story about a family with some family members missing, but someone else is there trying to take over the role of parents. They try to reconstruct that family bond. I love that sort of story. It affects me a lot, end quote. That feels a bit like Coriada in a nutshell to me. I think he's... Sounds almost cliche, but like his his films are almost all about family. Um, but like not necessarily biological family, but also you know non biological family, but also family in terms of you know workers working together, right? You know communities and like like he 
in a lot of ways, he doesn't really always have protagonists, like like the main protagonist. Like he, the protagonist is the the little community that is at the center of the the story and like how that works out. And I think that's why he's so interested in like I think like the the trauma of the family losing people, mm-hmm. you know, and how that like when one pillar drops out, how does the rest of it shift to to resupport the weight that is lost. Right. Yeah. I, I just feel it's it's like immediately compelling because like the family is like the strongest form of like interpersonal relationships that you have with each other. So I think I don't know. There you're always he's always primed um into like making you consider your your like deepest and strongest emotions um when making his movies. Um well said. Wow. <laughs> I said that. All right, should we move on to uh, shoplifters now? I yes. Guess? Let's, Let's do it. Let's do it. Maybe to start, how much do we all like it? Because I love it. <laughs> yeah, actually, how, how many times have you guys seen it? Because my first viewing, I, I liked it a lot. And the second viewing, I liked it about as much. But I forgot how sad it is. Yeah, it's rough. I've seen it three times. Um, the, hmm. right after the first time, I was like, this is his best movie. Like, this, uh, but I hadn't seen a lot of movies. I, like, I hadn't even seen Afterlife th- at that time. Um, but it was like the top of my 2018 list, the moment I saw it. And then it ended the year still on the top of my list, having rewatched it one time. And watching it again today, it still rings true. I think that it is his best movie. Uh, I'm okay. just like dropping this bomb. <laughs> Before we fight about that, uh, I mean, this is, <laughs> I've seen I it twice now. Myself? Oh, never mind. Um, if you want to, yeah, that. of course. Well, go ahead. I, I, I just think that it is the perfect like culmination of his career before making this movie because I feel like he like takes the best things from each of his movies. So I feel like there's like the, the, his use of children in like, nobody knows. And um, what's the other, I wish was the other Mm -hmm. um, child film. Uh, And like the disjointed family that he has in all his other films, as well as like, like stunning attention to detail in the, the stylistic elements of this movie. I think the cinematography is, like gorgeous i think his use of color is incredible um also the score is probably the creative score that i remember the most um Mm. out of all the films that i've seen and i I feel like i'm very like stylistically uh oriented um but i also do think that his use of style in this movie is is the one that's most like effective in um making me feel emotions um because mm. i always feel like like throughout his career he's he's been very like taking a backseat with how he approaches style or not 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 taking a backseat but not trying to be so overt but within shoplifters i feel like he pushes it a little bit but i think pushes yeah. it into good territory for me i think that's well said maybe we should do a little plot overview i think people can understand how much you love the movie without knowing the plot but fair warning will probably spoil the movie although i mean you should definitely go out and watch shoplifters 
however way you can. But um, I don't think knowing the plot is going to make a big difference in terms of the enjoyment of it. Because the second time I watched it, I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, this is good. It didn't feel like major Corey Ada. Like, it was definitely good for me. But then watching it again, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> this is major Corey Ada. Like, I mean, I think talking about the mishmash, like, it, it has, like, elements of third murder. So the plot's about this kind of family um, uh, of shoplifters, uh, i.e. the name of the movie, and they are living on the margins uh, with very low income. So we have the grandmother figure and we have the kind of father and mother figure, uh, which is Osamu and Nobuyo, yeah, who are kind of in a relationship. And then they also have other people that they've kind of pulled into the family unit, uh, which is uh, a young lady, uh, and also a, a child. And so the, the movie kind of begins with them finding this six-year-old girl that's been kind of, uh, who is outside her own home and they take her in and essentially kidnap her because they think that they can give her a better life than her more abusive, violent parents. Yeah, and so that that's really the kind of premise of the movie and then how a lot of the movie is about their kind of lives, especially in the first half, and then something unexpected happens which causes a lot of that family unit to fall apart. And not just fall apart, but it causes the characters to question the validity of their bond with each other in the first place. And I think that's the real power of that twist. Not really a twist, but the, the falling apart of the family unit. The power is that the emotional effect of that dissolution stretches backward in time to make you question everything that you've just seen as a viewer as well as the characters' bonds with each other throughout the prior runtime of the movie. It's really smartly constructed. It is. Um, yeah. Eli, did you, you had some stuff you wanted to say about um, shoplifters, right? Uh, sure. From your research? Yes. So, as Ben mentioned, you know, any anytime anyone makes a movie ab- about low-income families, there is a risk of the movie being labeled as poverty porn meaning it is depicting the life of poverty in a sensational way or a way that exists solely for the emotional satisfaction or moral satisfaction of the viewing audience who tends to not be living in poverty, right? Mm-hmm. Would, it, would you say that's an accurate description of what that term means? Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think that makes sense. I think just to add on, like, why that term kind of has, like, you know, that icky feeling is because, like, it's it feels almost exploitative of the situations of these people yes. who do exist. Like, they might be fictional characters, but, like, kind of using that those those circumstances to create an emotional response uh, in an audience. So it feels maybe exploitative on the filmmaker's part right. to kind of use those stories just for emotional response and then not really offering anything else on top of that, you know? It's yeah. just kind of... Uh, look at all these people, they're so poor, let's cry about it, and then feel good about how we empathize with them and then kind of walk out of the theater and forget all about it. Yeah. Right. That's sort of like the issue that I had with um, his other film, Nobody Knows, where I feel like he took it like way too far. Um, I just feel like stories of like child death should not be touched in cinema. But I also have a problem with Nobody Knows. It It definitely crosses that line of uh, existing solely for audience gut wrenching without right. offering something further, as Ben's talking about. 
Well, that's why I do feel like this is sort of like a like a second go, but he like yes. actually did it this time. Like he he like yeah, made us not feel bad about ourselves. So then the question <laughs> becomes, what's the difference? Someone asked right. Coriata about this in an interview around the time of the release of Shoplifters. He said, quote, if you have that empathy, you won't go down the road of voyeurism. You can't just sympathize. You have to make visible what is invisible. Make visible the factors that have brought the impoverished to this point so that the audience can see them in a fuller and more complex way. That skirts the trap of poverty porn. I don't want to present the film in such a way so that when the audience leaves the theater, they say, well, it's the government's fault. It's the system's fault. That's not what I'm trying to portray. They're part of it, but the people watching the film are part of it too, and they need to feel that by the end, end quote. So it's, he wants to lay some culpability for the events of the movie by depicting the factors that brought Osamu and Nobuyo to the, to the family structure that they created. He doesn't want that to exist, the response to that to exist solely as judgment, but he wants the audience to feel some responsibility for it too. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree that, like, uh, I don't have as much of a problem with Nobody Knows, I guess. Like, I mean, it definitely skirts the line for me. It is maybe too much, especially like, especially more melodramatic, I think. Yeah. But I do think those melodramatic elements that are across his filmography are very essential um, mm. for, like, the audience to, to, like, gain some sort of, like, heightened empathy with yeah. the, with these characters. Um, yeah, I, I do think it, it works like really extremely well in Shoplifters because he mm-hmm. like of that like half split that you, we were talking about earlier, where you spend the first half like really like genuinely getting to know these characters like within the context of their lives, but also just like as people. And I feel like that goes to show the strength of each single performer in this ensemble. I do think that there's like really not like a, a loose screw is that the term a loose screw or like a, a <laughs> odd, so. odd performer out in this movie I, I i do think they all are doing incredible work and hold this film together and, and like bring you in until it all sort of like comes crashing down i think another thing that we're kind of circling around that we could say about shoplifters is that Corey Ada wants us to feel as viewers a social responsibility for each other as people, as part of the same mm-hmm. uh, society, for lack of a <laughs> more interesting word. Um, right. And he creates that feeling of responsibility by portraying his characters empathetically and showing the factors that brought them to this point. And I think we can get into some of this stylistically too, but how he makes you feel both a part of the family and a little bit outside of it at the same time is, is something I felt certainly. And I think that that's a pretty remarkable feat. And I was paying more attention this time around to how he does that a lot with camera placement. So I was just thinking maybe let's talk about afterlife and then we can kind of start talking about them, you know, together, how, how they're different. I mean, there's, there's a whole 20 year stretch between the films, Yeah, which now that I think about it, it's actually a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, 
maybe um, you can talk about Afterlife E-License and you can maybe advocate for why you think it's better than Shoplifters. <laughs> and then we can... I didn't say that overtly, but... <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I'm just telling you've viewers... You've made your that position you very clear. Yeah, you've made your position yeah. very clear, Eli. Did I? So, um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. No, yeah, you definitely did. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think just maybe talk about like the plot and like, um, like what makes it great. Because I mean, it is a great movie. Yeah. Afterlife takes place at a facility or a campus of sorts that is effectively limbo. So it's where the recently deceased arrive after they have died, and they spend a week at this facility before moving on to eternity or the beyond. So what happens during that week is the recently deceased must choose one memory that they will take with them into the next plane of existence or non-existence. And they keep this memory through the process of it being made into a film by the staff who run this facility, who are dead but have not moved on to the beyond because they have not chosen their own memories. So they have their own unresolved trauma and flaws. So the movie itself takes place over one of these cycles these one of these week-long cycles when the staff bring in the deceased and we sort of learn how the process goes normally. And there are some events that happen. One recently deceased person in particular unearths old unresolved feelings that one of the staff members has about his own life. And it helps him to find his own peace and choose his own memory. It's an incredible concept. It's, it's a great concept, and it also would be so easy for it to be treacle and trite. I think in American hands, this movie would be terrible. Oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just thinking mm, about, like, I don't know. Hypothetically agree with that. But, like, his, but, uh, like a Spielberg remake of Afterlife okay. makes me want to vomit. That's disgusting. <laughs> so yeah, Spielberg definitely not going to be part of this podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and we we're also probably Spielberg. never going to burn that bridge. No, no, no. We can, we can do Spielberg. Um, okay, <laughs> Spielberg, if you're listening, we would still want to have you on. <laughs> yeah, Spielberg is definitely listening to uh <laughs> to deep. But I think, yeah. But I think what like I what I think really works about Afterlife is the the documentary aspect of it, or like his his document his years within documentary filmmaking, um, and I guess in the production of this fil- this film, apparently he did he did a lot of like documentary interviews and um, recorded a lot of footage like that, um, but like these people that uh, the employees of this facility interview. They are just like real people. They're real people. There's no way that like, well, there's no way that a lot of them aren't acting when they're they're telling their memories and and going through. What what I read was that um, so he did many interviews um of of real people asking them what's one memory you would take with you to heaven, and then I I guess he used heaven maybe just to like make it easier for people to understand. Right. Um, And I think he had a lot of non-actors, but then. What I read is that many of the stories that we hear are a mixture of non-actors telling their actual experiences, actors telling their actual experiences, and then actors telling scripted experiences. 
Right. And honestly, it is impossible to tell any from each other. Yeah. Except for maybe like a one, maybe like I would say well, I feel Isaiah's like one. The key ones, like, yeah, the key ones are might be a little bit more obvious, yeah. but yeah. But there's a few that like I'm pretty sure are the non-actors because I mean we don't really join them as much. Right. But like it all, you know, flows together. And like, you know, the way that he like the sh- the half the film is one shot, you know? Yes. <laughs> like it's that shot of them sitting at a table talking almost sterilely at the camera and like well but not I looking find... right into the lens which i think exactly. is really important wait Sorry, why is on. that important why is that important <laughs> it just struck me this time around so so yeah as ben is saying at the top of this week where the deceased come into the facility they're brought into these intake rooms where one of the workers sits them down and sort of does a preliminary interview about their memory that they might want to choose and the way it's framed is it's not a close-up. It's like a medium wide of you see the table, you see the room around them and the windows behind them. And center frame is the person, either actor or real person. And they're looking slightly off frame. It's like a it's like a documentary interview style. And it made me wonder this time around, and I don't have the answer to this. What's the perspective of the camera? Like who's whose perspective are we embodying in that moment? And I think that, I think part of the reason why Afterlife feels so essential in his filmography to me is that what Koreeda cares about is what other people care about. Does that make sense? He, he That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> That's he, a really good way to put it. <laughs> so the perspective of the camera in those moments maybe is just like, kind of Corey Ada himself and he's asking you to embody the perspective of someone who cares enough about other people to ask what matters to you what's the most important thing to you what is the one essential thing from your life that you would want to take into the next phase of uh, the universe once you are dead that's so well put I I yeah I really love that frame I do think that like a part of me when watching it was like oh maybe like this is like usually when you like interview someone um for i don't know like a documentary or i don't know like an interrogation or some sort of like thing where you would that you would place the camera like on the table like in between the two subjects um and like a little bit lower than eyeline and that's what i was thinking like oh this is like exact exactly like a like an interview um kind of camera position and i think that like adds to the the like sort of semi-reality that you you feel with when you're in the presence of of these people whether they're actors or non-actors but talking more about this shot it is very similar to a, 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 also another really important shot in Shoplifters. Yes. Where yes. Sakura Ando's character is getting told by these investigators. Basically the truth. The truth gets revealed to her. or, or um, and, and she's sort of like coming to terms with... It's, it's an emotional like high point. And I, like as soon as I, I... I watched Shoplifters after I saw Afterlife. And like as soon as that scene came up, I was like, oh my God, there, there's a link here. There's like a really big direct link between these two movies. I'll, so I kind of... When I was writing my notes for this, like, I kind of called this the confessional framing. Mm. And 
I think that's kind of how he kind of uses it. Like Afterlife, it's a confession of kind of like a really personal memory. And then for Shoplifters, it's a literal confession of a crime. Yes. And I think it has that, like in Shoplifters, the lighting is is pretty crappy. Like you were actually in an interrogation room. And in Afterlife, the lighting is 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 nice, but it's also kind of... What I really like about it when I when I think about Afterlife is that like, it feels like the camera was put there because it was the kind of simplest way to put it so that it allowed the kind of conversation between interviewer and interviewee so that they could talk about themselves and their lives. And like, it feels almost kind of incidental that it happens to be there. Like, yes, it's very nicely centered, but like it has that feeling of, you know, we're recording all this for posterity. Right. And it kind of also reminds me of the VHS tape footage, you know, it also has that kind Mm. of static feel. And so it almost feels like this other layer of, the film itself is also kind of recording some of these things for future reference as a remembrance, as a way to record memory. And I think that kind of makes sense, especially with shoplifters, where it's like these people in afterlife sitting before this table are really kind of naked emotionally. And when nobody was having confession, she's also naked emotionally. And I think when he does that, it's very clear, like, this is important. Like, in Afterlife, it's half the movie. In Shoplifters, it's barely much of a movie. But when it happens, it really, really it's feels distilled. almost intrusive on Nobuyo's kind of emotional space. Yeah, it's boiled down. It's distilled. It's a distilled like moment. He's like distilling that yeah. entire half of the movie into this one moment. That's why I feel it. it's yeah. just so powerful. And I was just reminded, like, because I also noticed uh, a similar-ish framing that he uses a little bit earlier on in Shoplifters when Nobuyo's co-worker betrays her. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and it's really odd. It's a really odd use of the, the framing. It's shot reverse shot, which is not um, not like the other two we've been talking about, you know, with the confessional framing. It's shot right. reverse shot, kind of almost a low angle, medium long shot. And it's her talking to her co-worker who's going to rat her out about the kidnapping. And it's this really frontal frame, kind of too wide almost in terms of the focal length. And she's just kind of naked before her co-worker who is just knows everything about her, knows kind of her deepest, darkest secret. And I think there's that kind of sensitivity that uh, Corey has with his cinematography that's just amazing to watch. And it's so simple, you know. It's also very confrontational. Uh, you know, the other mm-hmm. thing to say about that moment when her co-worker is confronting her and threatening her, the camera is placed right between that interaction. Yeah. So in the moments when Corey Ada really wants to confront you with the kind of moral fishiness of mm-hmm. what Nobuyo and Osamu are doing, there are different, there's stylistic punctuation. The camera is between Nobuyo and her coworker in that moment. In the moment when you first learn that Osamu and Nobuyo have killed someone and buried them under the house before they bury uh, Hatsue, the grandmother, the camera is at a high, almost surveillance camera angle, looking in on them from down the hallway as they discuss that. And then there's, once they're finally caught by the police, as we've been talking about, there's this, uh, the confessional angle that Ben has, I think, given a great name to. I was just thinking, so, I mean, previously I mentioned, you know, the third murder, which I, I'm not sure that either of you have seen. No. Um, no. It's it's not especially interesting. Um, and I think, it's Shoplifters is so weird because, you know, it's a mishmash of, like we said, nobody knows, a little bit of still walking with the way that it captures the family, a little bit of um, 
Uh, and then a little bit of Third Murder, which is, you know, about crime. Which, when he made that, it was like, why is he making a movie about crime? It's Corey Ada. It's so confusing. <laughs> um, but that, well, I think he learned something from that movie, which is that that movie wasn't great for me because it was about the ambiguity of whether somebody did a crime, you know? But with Shoplifters, it wa- there is no ambiguity to the crime. Mm-hmm. You know, we know they kidnapped. We know they killed this guy. We yeah. know they're doing all these things that are wrong. So everything is naked on the table. He's kind of giving you all, like when he gives you that frontal shot, you know they did this. You know, there is no doubt about the crimes that have been committed. But he's much more interested in, so what? Mm-hmm. You know, like, so what did, if they did these crimes? Like, and I think that was the thing about the, my second watch, which was really interesting because I realized how much more morally complex it was. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, I think it's like going in knowing the the fact that they did kill someone this time around, um, like ch- changes and make me, makes me want to like look a little more objectively at the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like not like feeling it really hard. Like it's hard not to be compelled to to like love these characters and love this yeah. family as a unit and want them to to stay together. There's a real push and pull between those light, enjoyable, everyday moments that Coriette is so good at depicting and those moments where you sort of step back and say, well, wait a minute, like this is kidnapping. This is mm-hmm. taking advantage of an elderly woman. This is another kidnapping <laughs> as we learn uh, <laughs> the young boy yes. oh, as gee. Chota has been. Chota. Uh, and I think, I mean, even before like, you know, like these big reviews, like when, when Hatsue dies, like the, the glee that they have when they find money. Yeah. Like it's, it's really kind of dark and like, I'm just, mm. and that, those moments, I was just like, damn, like they do feel like they're exploiting the people around them, you know? Yeah. But it still doesn't really, because he's done such a good job of kind of creating this family unit. And I don't think it was a deceptive way of presenting it. He does present, you know, this tenderness, but he's giving you all the angles at once. And then for the second half of the movie, after Hatsue dies and get caught, it's just like me, like being bombarded by all these ideas of like, how do I feel about them? And honestly, I can't really say I have a conclusion about whether it's better or worse either way. You know what I mean? Me neither. But I, like, one thing is, like, definite. Like, that it, it hurts. It hurts. It hurts yes. them and it hurts you as the viewer. Like, I think the, for me, this like, one of the strongest bonds in this movie, and I think the movie is, like, sort of based on this, is, like, the uh, Osamu Shota, like, father son like relationship and um that last scene is we could just yeah we'll jump to that last scene well let's let's talk about shota's arc a little bit because i think he is he is the most important i'd say he's he's not always the perspective character but his perspective is the most important in that it it loosely mirrors the audience experience going through this movie right I agree. I think like the I guess, guess the amount of information that that he knows is very similar to. I think what know. how I kind of understand what you just said, Eli, is that like his perspective. I mean, we do follow him a lot, um, but his perspective is interesting because he's the one in the middle. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, he's the one that has been taken, but he's older than um, than Yuri or uh, Lin. Uh, they renamed the little kid Lin, um, so he kind of is being mentored, but also is mentoring somebody else. And so in terms of the kind of generational breakdown, he's like kind of stuck in the middle yeah. um, in a sense. And so he sees like, and then he has that kind of reflective sense of like, 
Like I'm seeing what I'm doing to somebody else, thinking about how what somebody else has done to me, how that looks. Right. You know, so he has that kind of self awareness for the kid, and like I mean, it's, it's kind of ambiguous, but it seems like he gets caught because his conscience actually catches up to him, in a sense. Like that's kind of how I read it. Like when he he gets caught, it almost feels like he he finally realizes the things that he's doing with this family is, I mean, legally wrong and maybe morally wrong as well. And branching outward from that, we can review the idea that Corey Eda is trying to confront us with some level of wrongness in our participation in this movie as mm-hmm. well. It's mm. Shota both enjoys the thrill of shoplifting, enjoys the intimacy of the family bonds, and he comes to view both with a sort of distaste and complication as we do as well. Right. And, and then going to that last scene, as Wilson mentioned, nonetheless, in the very end, Shota still views that bond with Osamu with some level of legitimacy. He says father in the end or dad. Mm. Yeah. It, and that's, that feels very Koreeda. It's like the thing that like, in spite of all this, there's still people and you still care. I think the thing that you just triggered in my mind, Eli, from what you were saying. So, like, I mean, we've been talking about how the movie split in two halves, right? Um, and I think the really incredible thing about the way that he structures the movie is that the first half is essentially a slice of life drama about a family living on the margins who are entirely unrelated to each other, right? Like, there is literally no blood relation between any of the characters, mm-hmm. right? And then we see how this family is a family and how they enjoy their time together, how Lin's life has improved uh, in joining this family. And he sells it really well. Like, you know, this is a real family, you know, and it culminates with that beach scene, yeah. which is just so pleasant. Oh, and, yeah. it, Great scene. and, you know, Osamu has kind of like a fatherly moment talking about uh, puberty with uh, Shota. You know, it feels like, you know, like this slice of life of a family. And then he, he's kind of setting this up, right? And right. then when you find out all the things that should break this family apart, you know, the murder, um, Sayaka, who is the um, the young sex worker who is like sub, like sort of related to the grandmother. She's the, it's confusing as hell. <laughs> it's the grandmother's ex-husband's new wife's grandkid, yes. something like that. Yes. <laughs> Very confusing. Yeah. But um, she doesn't know any of these things and then like uh, feels like, you know, Nobuyo and Osamu have exploited her. But like, even with all those things, like, you know, the joy and like the tenderness that we felt in that first half, it's just so hard to let go of that it feels like he's making this argument like, you know, this is what a family looks like and feels like and you agree with me. But what it like, so so what happens when, you know, it's not built on on reality? What if it's built on lies? You know, does that kind of discount the genuineness of this family unit? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it creates such a, you know, powerful rift in my moral compass that yeah. I just don't know how to reconcile. It really sticks with you. Um, I, I do think that it's, it, that is something that shoplifters does that like afterlife, I, I guess like for, for a little bit after watching afterlife, there was some like contemplation on like, I don't know, a, a memory that I would choose personally or just thinking about these people's lives and um, how they're so different. Um, but I, I, I did feel, feel that um i don't know there were some aspects of afterlife that didn't really like wow me that much on a on a second watch i feel like 
there like a lot of like the backstory with the like the like the side story of the um the people the employees working in the the facility um I could have done without um <laughs> I was wondering what your thoughts are yeah i i mean to be to respond to that to be frank i think what ben just said probably just swayed me around on shoplifters <laughs> i think that i think that you're welcome. Maybe Actually, I okay. This this is gonna sound like a, a, a non sequitur, uh, but quickly, and then we'll, let's definitely get back into into afterlife because I have something else to say about that. I was watching a Q and A over Zoom with uh, Mike Makowski, the writer, and Corey Finley, the director of Bad Education, <gasps> and Corey Finley said something that I want to have stamped onto my forehead. Uh, movies that force us to acknowledge the multitudes within people have a moral place in this world. And uh, Shoplifters does that so well. I might cut mm-hmm. that out because that just sounded pretty trite. But <laughs> Well, I, <laughs> anyway. I think it's very brave. Not very brave, but I think it is so hard to make a movie about people that you would objectively think of as bad people. <laughs> like... Like, Bad Education and this movie are just, like, incredible feats because, like, I don't know, in an ideal world, like, would you want to spend more than, like, 10 minutes with a murderer? Like, no. Um, but in this movie, you, you like, yeah, I don't know, you really, like, grow to love these people. And that's, like, what I really find so incredible about Koreeda's work is that he's, he, like, has the ability to make you really feel for these people. Yeah. But yeah, to afterlife. To afterlife, which I now I'm I'm agreeing with. I I do agree with your criticism of it. I think probably Shoplifters is. No, don't 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 do that that easily. (laughs) I I, Okay, no, you talk first, Eli. I'm gonna I'm gonna come in. (laughs) Here's I think some of the as we've said, the premise of afterlife is very is very clever and it would be easy for it to just be clever and nothing more. But there's I think there's an important distinction and it's how Koreeda views death. And to put a sort of thesis on what I'm about to say, he gives death life. So what do I mean by that? There's a play uh that's that's like a classic American play called uh Our Town by Thornton Wilder. I saw a production of this play in the 10th or 11th grade. And it, I, I think about it a fair amount because the ending is very upsetting. A woman who you've seen build her family over the course of the play passes away. And almost the entire of, entirety of the last act is just her funeral. And she reconnects with someone she knew who died, who explains to her, you've got to let go of life. It's only going to upset you to try to hang on to life and you sort of have to just fade away and not care about anything more anymore in death because that's the way it goes. And that's what she ends up doing. You see her sort of not care anymore by the end of the funeral. I hate that. <laughs> I, I, I hate that idea. And as I was watching, as I was rewatching Afterlife this time, I thought this is in direct contrast to that idea of death that Thornton Wilder presents in our town. There are still emotions in this limbo space at the facility. You can still process trauma and grief, and you can still grow as a person. The dead still read and care to know things. They eat and drink. They listen to music. They wear clothing. They bathe. 
mundane things happen, like electricity overloads, and there is humor and joy and playfulness. And, and the very idea that you have to choose something to hang on to in the eternity beyond life, you, it's the opposite. Our, our town's view of death is that the dead have to learn to let go of life. And afterlife's and Coriada's view of death is that the dead must learn to retain life and care about something for all time. Whenever you're telling a story about people who are deceased or souls, I think the question kind of comes up, what is essential to life? What is the thing that like makes us people and have a soul? And I don't agree with the idea that it's it's simply existing or or just going into nothing. I like what Coriata presents, which is that what's essential to the soul is caring about something. And that feels very Coriata to me. Mm-hmm. All right. I got something <laughs> to say. I, I agree with you, Eli, though. Yeah, I do. I, I, I mean, I definitely agree with you, Eli. I was just thinking about, I want to defend afterlife, even though I still like shoplifters more as an emotional experience. Because I think... I mean, I think, I mean, it's not really a dichotomy, you know, not just because Shoplifters, you know, is, you know, kind of crunchier in terms of the, the moral dilemma. It doesn't make it a better movie, I think, mm-hmm. because it's, I mean, for me, I enjoy it more because of it, but I don't think it makes it necessarily a better movie in that respect because Afterlife is especially not interested in morality. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that makes it kind of an incredible movie and also maybe his most humanist movie almost. I mean, I'm not going to say that I definitely believe that, but early on in the movie, when they're explaining the mechanics of the facility, they say that someone asks, is there heaven? Is there hell? He's just like, no. Everyone comes here. Everyone picks a memory and everyone picks up. No no one has to choose like a bad memory to torture themselves because they were a bad person. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets to pick a good memory that they like. It's like an existentialism of death. Yeah. You choose. So, I mean, the, the kind of original name for the movie in Japanese is Wonderful Life. Mm. You know? And I think that's really interesting because it means he's saying that for all of the people who go come into this place, they get to kind of remember their life as a wonderful life. So, like, it's not explicitly said that any of them are criminals or bad people because he never even gives you a chance to think of them that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's almost like afterlife is his answer to the morally complex question he poses in shoplifters because shoplifters asks, so what if people do bad things, if they can do some good, you know? Right. And so the answer in afterlife is, you know, you die. And the only thing you need to think about is what is the good that you've done, you know, for others, for yourself. And I think that's the kind of beautiful thing about it. Like it's non-judgmental, just like Horiada. Like, we have that kind of thing where um, the girl with the Disneyland memory, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's... it's She's juvenile and young, but, I mean, she's she's a kid. And when Shiori comes up and asks her, you know, I've heard this thing 30 times, like... And that's all she says. She doesn't say, you know, this is lame. She just goes, I've heard it 30 times. And then the girl's just like, so it's common. And then she gets it. You know, she immediately gets it. Like, she gets that she needs to hold on to something that has tremendous meaning for her. And I think... That that's kind of the beauty of afterlife. Like it's it's asking you this kind of incredibly philosophical question. Right. And with such a non-judgmental view of the way afterlife works, like the way we view our lives. Because yes, it's about the afterlife, but it's really about with the lives we have lived, right? So yeah. Well said. 
but how does that answer my critique of like the, <laughs> the employees working at this facility? <laughs> I mean, no, but I love the employees working at the facility. So, um, Shiori is a huge enigma to me. I was reading. Apparently, she's an off orphan, which I did not pick up. Oh, I didn't at all that. when no, I was watching. I did not pick uh, up. Apparently, uh, but I mean, I think they're really interesting. I mean, there's a bit of that kind of coincidence in like melodramatic coincidence that right. that guy's fiance, like yeah. wife, is is his fiance. But you know, I kind of let it go, and like, I think it's still interesting. And like, his, I mean, okay, I mean, the most emo, the two really emotional parts in Afterlife. The first one is him reading that letter from the guy Watanabe and yeah. it's like the most kind thing yeah, in the movie it really is you know because Watanabe knows that um, uh, Mochizuki is the earlier fiance the deceased fiance of his wife yes. and then thanks him for not saying anything you know so that he could kind of pass on and that review is just like exceptionally yeah effective. a really and great then, reveal yeah the sec the, the real really most emotional thing is like, you know, we think of our memories as being, you know, first-person point of view. Like, we're looking at stuff, you know? Yeah. But we we build memories in our heads. And we think... I, I have many out-of-body types of memories, you know? I reimagine these things. I mean, there's a lot of words that have been said about, you know, like how... Like, people talk about how afterlife is just about filmmaking and how filmmaking is like memories. But I love that Mochizuki's memory is one shot of him sitting on a bench. Yeah. And part of the memory is the shot of the camera. Yes, and the crew behind genius, it. Oh it's my genius, god! Genius, it's genius, it's genius. Yes, yeah, that that incredible. it is incredible. Last seed, um, yeah, and yes, yeah, I I do, like even though you like I I do really think that um if you make movies and you understand the power that like moving images with sound have on people. Um, I think this movie will also, like, really speak to you. I, like, am such a big sucker for movies about people making movies, and this is probably, like, the wildest movies about make people making movies because this is going to... This is... They are making the most important movie of all these people's lives. And I yeah. feel like the the weight of that... Like, I know this is... They're doing a job, but, like, the, the weight of that must be so, like, heavy on these on these people... And I also just like love like like love the little like production stuff. Like it's so fun. Like we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And and, <laughs> and when she's like she's like pissed, she's like, I am I'm, I'm just gonna go on a location scout and then it just like goes off and wait, wait, really location scout? Like wait, can I just ask what you guys think about a location scout? Okay. Is the world, oh, it's the world. So yeah, yeah. That's yeah. one like, where is she going? I find that moment really challenging. I don't know what to make of it or how it fits in with the rest of it. So yeah, like just just for people to understand, like she goes on a location. So we most of the film is in, in a facility where we ostensibly only see dead people. It seems like it's a and limbo then, space. Yeah, but then she goes on a location scout, and then there's cars and people, people, and she's like hanging out. Is she is she like dead and like walking the earth? I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's really odd, <laughs> but I mean, kind of awesome. Yeah, it it works emotionally, but it and I think that's the more important thing. Because you sense her mm-hmm. frustration in that moment and her disconnect from everything around her in that moment. And maybe that's enough. I don't know. Talking about the filmmaking process, like, I think what's really cute is that we, we never really see many of the films that are filmed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We see the BTS footage, which is so cool. It feels like we're actually on a film set. And I have to say, right now, I can't think of a better movie about making movies 
than this one. I mean, yeah. Like, there are definitely more fun ones, but, like, this is, like, the most, like, interesting and meaningful one for sure. Right. I think yeah. there's an important thing we can highlight here about Koreeda in general, which is that showing the process of how people either make things or accomplish a task, which I think is something that happens in pretty much all of his movies, whether it's cooking or doing a chore or going out, like, in shoplifters and the process of how they shoplift. Yeah. It, it, he uses that to always show the emotional state of the person and their connection to the people around them. Yeah, I mean, certainly in Afterlife, the process of making movies and the process of, I think, in particular, the woman who is recalling the dance that she did um, and, like, mm-hmm. teaching that to the young girl who's going to play her and the pilot. I think one of the most emotionally effective things in the movie is the man who is recalling his time as a pilot and he cries at the memory of something that doesn't on its face sound like it would be terribly emotional as he's describing that memory. You, you can um, sense how much it means to him. And that is like, what's coming through to you. Yeah. That's, that's another thing that I really like love is how the documentary esque style of the, movie really makes you believe in them as real people i like kept on thinking about like there is like a way that Corieta could have made this like probably made this movie with a lot of the subjects in that like no one they're not acting like i don't i i like believe i believe in my heart that when she was teaching that little girl how to dance she was not acting and they were actually trying to like recreate her memory and she was teaching this girl a mem- like the dance from her own memory. I and I think Agreed. that is so beautiful and like so unique in cinema. Wow, I'm probably getting sold uh, on 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 Afterlife now. <laughs> We're all doing a swap. The the both so great. I mean, I think the thing that's crazy about I mean, I still like Shotlift this more, but I think now that we're talking about this, it feels like Afterlife is the movie you make after you make all your other movies. Right. But it's the second movie. It's crazy the other <laughs> way around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, and it, I mean, it's the first movie he writes. Like, he writes about movies as memory making before he made all those other movies. Yeah. Which is just wild. Like, it's like he knew intrinsically about all these things from the opening of his career, which is, I, mean, I think really just goes to show, like, his ability to empathize and like think about yeah. like what he's doing with these stories. Like I right. think he's thinking very much about like, what he's doing. With his what stories. what do you think about that? Like him going from like very like conceptually like complex movies like this movie and like maybe like distance. I feel like distance is like you you are trying to juggle all these these ideas like big ideas in your head. Like moving on to like like father like son like our little sister and which are i i would say a little more like easy to explain and like the emotions that you're supposed to feel like you understand like why you feel those emotions like yes I, I, yeah like what do you think about that progression in his career i mean immediately it feels like he goes from a macro to micro perspective mm-hmm. almost like he already had this idea this is how he thinks about the world and then as he has done the big concept movies. And after he's like, you know what? The only way to make sense of my concept is just go into each person. Yeah. You know, let's go down to the individual level to kind of play it all out in all its facets. And then that kind of sells his point. So Afterlife really just kind of set up his entire career as 
his perspective. It's crazy. Know? He's just out of the gate, just like a like a incredible yeah, filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he is an incredible filmmaker. Like some people, some people wait their whole careers to get to an afterlife moment. It's crazy. Yeah. It's. Crazy. What do you think, Eli? I I love that Ben. I he yeah he he really knows how to have the big idea kind of movie and then also the zooming into a specific type of movie and i think i think i I have to agree with what wilson said about it being a culmination a shoplifters being a culmination of his career in that sort of big idea specific idea sense too because it's it seems like on its surface it's one of his like specific movies but there's really a much larger idea about how we relate to other people and and who we care about and why and how we can expand who we care about. And yeah, he, he just cares so much. And so incredible. I feel like the closest person or like the closest to other people that I would say share that same quality is, um, Varda, who we might be touching on soon, and yeah. um, Kiristami, who, mm. and I feel like they're like sort of like the trifecta of like humanist directors, at least in my mind. Like I, I like have a very like I'm sure there are others, but like for me, those are like the three that like really, 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 really care about the people that they're making their films about, whether it is like a documentary or a narrative film, they just really show that they really care about these people. Um, and it's, it, you, it's, I don't know. It's sort of sad that like, uh, you can't really say the same about a lot of other directors because that's, I feel like is a trait that I wish to see in a lot of other films. Um, mm. but it is what makes those fi- those films by these three directors so special to me though i'll also say that there are there are positive ways of showing that you care and i think that the, you know Kirstami, varda Koreeda definitely demonstrate that and then i think that there are there's demonstration of an idea through negative example and mm. uh i i know that we're going to be talking about oscar fahadi at some point and we'll return to that idea then. This is like sort of like a trailer for the rest of the season. <laughs> a little teaser for the rest of the season. So, I mean, I think, I feel like we've gushed a lot of these two movies. I just kind of wanted to pivot to talking about something a bit maybe more technical. Because watching the movies, I was just thinking about the way that um, Kari Ada structures his stories. Yes. Um, and I think it's something really interesting. I mean, like, they're very different. I mean, Afterlife happens over a week in, in, in dead time. Um, which is Monday to, I guess, I think it was Saturday. So they, it's very played out really clearly. Monday, you arrive, you have three days to pick and Thursday, Friday are shoot days. And then I think they get to cheat a few shoot days at the end too. Um, but that's it. So it's a week. Um, and it's very clear every every day it shows you Monday, Tuesday, it tells you with a little, um, a little title. It tells you what day it is. When does um, the editing and... happen? When does the <laughs> editing happen? Corey Ada edits his so own with... movies too, which we didn't mention. Oh, right. right. Master editor. With Shoplifters, and I think with a lot of his other movies, I think his films kind of follow the rhythm of real life. And um, Shoplifters, first half at least, um, is very much about um, the the lives of this found family. And I think it follows like a few days only of, of, their, of their relationships. And it has a few jump cuts, but... If you look at it, like it's really like shoplift, have dinner, 
take a bath. Wait, they don't really take a bath. Like, you know, like shoplift, have dinner, do stuff, go to work, which could be, you know, going to sex to do sex work or like going shoplifting again, you know? So it has that kind of like homework rhythm, which is the exact same thing as afterlife, you know? Homework rhythm, you know? The staff members go to work, they talk to these people, then they go home, they reflect on their own lives, then they go to work the next day. And I think that's the thing that's really interesting. We see that with um, Still Walking, which is mm-hmm. a single day marked by meals. Um, and so he kind of follows these kind of almost like he already had this idea of the timeline first. Mm-hmm. And then he seeds the story into it. So it, you don't realize yeah. what the story is because it feels yeah. like you're following a routine. But then he's kind of like expertly kind of just seeded yeah. the sense of the story, you know. And I think the thing that I was thinking about is... um he's really smart at introducing things without you realizing it. I, I really love what you said about how, like, um, it doesn't really matter what sort of, like, time period that his films take place in. Not not, not in, like, age-wise. It's just, like, whether the film takes place over a week or, like, a, a few months, uh, he's, like, still able to, like, build a structure within um, a specific time period. And I think it, it really gives you that sense. Like, you, you don't really... He lets... It allows him to sneak stuff up on you, you know? Like, like what's going you're stuff? just like... Like, he, you're just kind of following the routine. And then suddenly it's like, oh, here's a review within the routine itself. Like, so for example, what, like, we see Nobuyo go to work a few times in Shoplifters. And then she goes to work and she's fired. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like a variation on the work. And then, like, for example, we see Shota go shoplifting a few times. And then it's like, oh, we're just shoplifting again. But then it's like each one is a three-act structure on its own. It's like, I go to work once, I go to work once. The third time is when shit hits the fan, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I think if we look at the pattern, okay, Shota definitely goes shoplifting three times or four, and then the last one goes to shit. Yeah. Nobuyo also goes, goes to, to work, work at l- three times. Yeah. Before she gets fired. But it's, uh, what's his name? Osamu, who, who goes to work one time and then comes back <laughs> injured. <laughs> like, can't even do, can't even do a full three acts structure. <laughs> That's the other thing about what he does with process, too. You know, we, we talk about how it shows the emotional state of the characters and the relationships to each other. But it also shows where they are in the story, as we're mentioning. The first scene in the movie is a successful shoplifting run between Shota and Osamu. The next one, I believe, is when they first take Yuri out. Or no, Yuri has learned the ropes by this time, but they rob the fishing line store. Yeah. Then there is the the robbing of the small kind of corner store Shop. with the old man. Well, I there's a no, there's well. a, yeah, there's an yeah. earlier corner store. Um, yes. Yeah. Where Yuri sort of like under starts to understand what's going on, or like the the process of shoplifting. Yes, then the fishing one, then the corner store man catches them. Then they try to go visit the corner store again, and the owner has passed away. Mm-hmm. And then there's the one where... The big one. Shota half covers for Yuri and half maybe purposely gets caught. And right. that trajectory is shown through the action of shoplifting. Yeah. Yep. And even more so the, the, the little hand like mood gestures that they that they yeah. do it like makes you think about that repetition. It's like how many times have they done that already? Um, exactly. Just it, him reinforcing it in your mind. 
it condenses the recall of where we have been into this one gesture, which is really smart. And it's, uh, it just coheres everything in that image. Yeah. Would you, do you guys want to talk about a, a quick style briefing on, <laughs> on Corrieta um, and, and the films that we, we focused on for this episode? Yeah. I, sure. I, I have a, on, yeah. I, I, this is not an overarching observation, but just a quick thing from Afterlife that has to do with sound. When the old man Watanabe is trying to pick his memory and he's closing in on choosing the afternoon park bench with his wife, Kyoko, we see that back to back. I'm forgetting the first time we see it, but the second time is the videotape. The first time we see it, we hear cicadas going on in the park. And the second time we see it, we hear birds going on in the park. Oh, wow. And that's that great. Little, you know, of course, when we talk about style, uh, the first thing that comes to mind tends to be image. But Corey Ada finds ways to put a lot of meaning into sound as well. Yeah, I think that extends into shoplifters where I feel like the the score really has like a very important role in um, like guiding audience emotions and also like how he he like um builds like motifs with the shoplifting scenes um and um how that sort of like breaks down in, in the in the last scene where um shoda gets caught um shoplifting i i also yeah. do think it's there's um he sort of like center uh, like centers the film around these big like moments or like big scenes in your your you that you can like remember like very clearly visually like you have like the beach scene where which is like so beautiful and so simple um but yes. you just have that image of of them playing in the water and what's her name the grandma like not the grandma hatsue. the old woman hatsue like watching them and like that being like the last like like big family moment before it starts um the, the family unit starts to, to, to fall apart. Yeah, I, I also do really love how in Shoplifters in particular, uh, Corrieta has a deep fat, like a, he's very focused on like the, the heat or like the cold because these are ele- yes. like elements because they are, they live in such a, a like a shoddy house the the seasons around them like actually affect them inside the house like in summer they're like sweating you have that like sex scene which is like they're, they're like dripping it's like ridiculous and then and then you you have the the um like the winter scenes towards the end um that that really like feel like so cold i feel it also like just makes you think about like the 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 time period where this whole film takes place in it's another way of demonstrating the factors that affect why people act the way they do. They live in a material world as we do and are affected by context as we are. I think the seasons, like the marking of time that he does, um, and he does this in other films as well, like because he's not really trying to tell you like a condensed story of like two days in a person's life usually. Like he's trying to talk to you about, you know, a person's life at large. Mm-hmm. And I think that's those really like the way that he emphasizes the cold and the summer really just foregrounds the fact that time has passed like it's mm-hmm. i mean he could be more subtle about it but i think it's it's cute that he does that because these are real things that people feel and it, it has that 
reminder of texture of life. Yeah, that really texture of life. It. Yeah, and mm. it also reminds me, like, kind of looping back, talking about narrative structure, and like he does something really cool about backstory, where like you know, backstory isn't really to support what's going on. Backstory kind of implies a larger world outside the story. So, for example, in Afterlife, all the stories that you're told imply a larger world outside the world that we see. Uh, mm-hmm. Where, I mean, you have to, like, throw away stories of, you know, the guy, the the soldier in wartime, you know, love stories. And they, they suggest, you know, bigger lives. And I think with Shoplifters, he does the same thing, you know, like, like the whole subplot about Aki, which is um, the grandmother's sort of not really stepdaughter, like, it suggests a whole family unit there in one scene. And then that's it. That's all you get from that. Mm-hmm. And then it, it just creates this big question of why is it like this, you know? And you kind of have to fill in the blanks. And he doesn't want to because he wants you to just kind of realize that there's a world bigger than that. And then even, like, the murder, we don't know much about the murder as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of there. And, like, with Lin's family as well, it's also very... He kind of has a very kind of not concrete painting of what's happening around the edges of the story so that you can kind of feel like the story is bigger than it actually is on the screen. Right. And I feel yeah. like if it's very conclusive, it like makes you as an audience, I, I don't know, like go on either side of like whether you want to like support the family or not. I feel like he does want to like keep you thinking about the the film for a long time. And that's why he keeps a lot of these things open. I, I, I think about, I think about backstory a fair amount. It, it it both implies a larger world, as as you're saying, Ben, and it mm-hmm. extends the development and the arc of the characters backwards in time to before the movie. Mm-hmm. When you yep. when you bring up backstory, there's always the question of why is this coming up now? How does it not feel inorganic and brought up just because the writer needs it to come up? And I think that Corey Ada is really good at finding clever ways of he knows when to withhold backstory and make you ask the question and want to know what the backstory is. And he's good at choosing the moment when to reveal it. So think about something like still walking for the first, like 20, maybe 30 minutes of the movie. You don't know what the event in this family's life that has caused something of a rift is. And it comes up in this really casual way when the young man who uh, the deceased brother saved and drowned in the process of saving comes to the house. And then it's sort of explained. He makes you ask the question about backstory before he gives you the answer. And when you get the answer, it's this thing that you're talking about, Ben, which is that it feels like a moment of, oh, this is why these people have been acting this way. It's mm-hmm. that same, he uses backstory to get us to understand why people act the way they do. It's not there for the twist or the shock. It's not there for plot so much as it is for a holistic understanding of the characters as people. Yeah. Uh, Funnily, this reminds me of like the sex scene again, because early on in the film, you know, someone asks, how did he have sex? Right. And then like Osamu was just like, you know, we're connected by by our hearts, not our like our bodies. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's really kind of, like, even that, like, it's almost kind of a throwaway way of using the backstory kind of thing, like, of, like, seeding story. But then it's just kind of, like, when you do see it, it's kind of, like, there's something sweet about being able to see it, even though everyone's talked about how they haven't seen it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But I just wanted to talk about the lighting change in the sex scene, like, right before the sex scene. 
oh my god. It's I was like, did my TV fuck up? (laughs) (laughs) The lighting in this movie is wild. I like it's so precise and warm. I'm just like so fascinated by how they approached lighting this movie. I was just thinking because like they are having noodles, right? And it's like really hot and yeah. they're taking on this ice and they're sweating in buckets. And then it's really warm light. And then suddenly the lighting shifts to this cold light and then it's like, what the fuck just happened? Right. And then it sh- it, it thunders it and rains, it rains, right? Yeah. Great moment. Honestly, really weird to watch. Like <laughs> kind of takes you out of it because it doesn't look that real. But also really cool because I was just thinking about how, you know, the rain is used to kind of connect the, the, the events happening in parallel with Shota and Lin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, being able to see that rain starts in this scene and then see the rain continue in a different scene, like, is really useful for him to kind of tie them all together as a community. And that's kind of what he does. Like, in Still Walking, especially, you know, so much is going on. A lot of family members, but they're all kind of doing their own things. But the timeline keeps moving, you know? It never feels like I'm watching this happen at 1 a.m. and then I'm going to watch it happen again a different perspective at 1 a.m. It just feels like we're just moving along, you know? Mm-hmm. Almost like, you know, a documentary where Ooh. they can only be in one place at one time, you know? <laughs> that raises a really interesting point about what Corey Ada does not do. He does not do these very kind of filmmaker-forward choices, things like no. uh, jumping through time. Uh, you know, he's always linear. Um, he doesn't do, like very forceful editing like jump cuts and okay things. he's not always linear eli we we, we forgot to talk about distance <gasps> oh you're right you're right you're right i am a fool and i will be banished from this podcast also there are jump cuts in uh, afterlife uh, but i think that's just <laughs> ah, you're right <laughs> because of the interview format and the real stories he had to cut some like like not so interesting bits and but i mean the jump cuts are really interesting because they kind of remind you that this could be real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, it's like, you know, YouTube when they do jump cuts, it's the same thing. Yeah. You know? like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Hey guys, this guy just, he fucked up. So he's so going to jump cut right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like that kind of almost kind of foregrounds the artifice of the film. But it makes sense because it's a film about filmmaking. So, you know. Yeah. I was about to say he doesn't do zooms, but I just remembered he does a zoom in uh, when uh, Shiori is venting her frustration on the rooftop Kicking with the snow. snow. Oh, yeah. yeah. I honestly did not understand that scene. Like, what do you guys think? I I mean, I think it makes sense when she goes to uh, Mochizuki's room and says, like, I'm I'm sad that you're leaving. She, It seems like she lived a life without many close bonds with people, and now that she's yeah, and now she's Mochizuki. having the opportunity mm-hmm. to make these bonds, and it's, like, yeah. being taken away. Yeah. That's there's, another really beautiful thing about afterlife is that it it both advocates for retaining something that you care about once life is done and also a letting go mm-hmm. and yeah I, I think that whole thing is really embedded in mochizuki's arc it's interesting how i mean like just, just to note like both films have somebody leaving yeah and how that affects the story and like afterlife is also a story about like a a found family mm-hmm. like that's not really a biological family. Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful. Anything else you want to talk about? Oh, uh, I just thought of one thing. I noticed this time around watching Afterlife that the set where they're filming, yeah, the, all the technicians who come in are men. No gender parity on the on the 
on that limbo oh, set. As is, <laughs> as is life. Oh, That's geez. true, huh? Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, <laughs> bit of a bummer. Do you think that he actually just had his crew do the work, and then like he was just like, "All right, huh. pretend we're working on a film now, and then I'm gonna bring this other guy to do the the filming of the BTS." I think so. Do you think they? I uh, do you think they actually shot everything? Like even I don't know. Maybe they did. I feel like it. I really think the Cessna guy is real. He feels the most real of all mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. Which guy? Um, the says the guy with the plane. The plane. Yeah. Oh the yes. Guy. I just also think that yeah. the lady dancing was also. Oh yeah, yeah that one felt really real. To real. Yeah. Um, um, I do want to talk. I I want to talk uh, talk about the the time that I saw Afterlife for the first time because it was. Oh, yeah. I feel like it was a really yeah. impactful watch for me. Uh, I l- caught this film uh, in March. Um, as part of the IFC Corrieta uh, like retrospective. And it was the only film that I caught. Um, and I saw it with my friend, my dear friend, Theo. Um, and that was the last film that I saw in the U.S. before I had to, to leave it to go back to Hong Kong. Um, it was a weird, a weird moment in time because people, like the virus was getting to New York and like it, it was like pro- basically the last day before people stopped going out and i i do think like just watch sitting down and like being like really like fully immersed in to a movie and to a world where where people are so i i was really really thinking about like retaining memories and like making memories and this the watch watching the movie itself with a with a dear friend and then like ha- getting to talk about it for over dinner afterwards was is a memory that I will retain for as hopefully as long as I live. It, it might it probably won't be the the memory that I choose if 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 I were to choose, but it <laughs> it would be I guess maybe a, a top a top ten a top ten I guess if I were to die today, which I, I hopefully won't. <laughs> Agreed. Hopefully not. Yes. Hopefully not. I, I think. I think that's a that's a really nice way to put it, Wilson. It's you know, one of the one of the hardest things about pandemic is being taken away from other people and the company of other people. And I think that's part of why I feel so invested in this podcast is because the power of movies even watched separately. You know, I'm in New York, Ben's in Singapore, Wilson is in Hong Kong but that we can watch these movies in separate places and share that emotional experience and then come together and discuss it and think about why we had those emotional experiences. I, I believe in the value of that. And I hope that you, the listener, will join us uh, on our journey as we continue to do that together. Wow, that's like beautiful. <laughs> so, Subscribe! Subscribe! <laughs> So that about wraps it up for this episode of Deep Cut. Please remember to give us a rating and review it so that we can keep making the show and so more people can find the show. Make sure to subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts so you'll know when the next episode releases. Remember to give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Cut Pod. And much thanks to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. Special thank you to Jenna Ipkar for her help in setting up this podcast and giving us some advice on how to do that. Uh, You can hear her podcast, Notes from the Back Row and Cinema 60, wherever podcasts are found. We are recording in the pandemic, so we hope all of you are staying safe and keeping your loved ones close, whether it's through physically or over video 
call, whatever. Yeah. Yep, stay safe. And if you haven't seen the movies that we discussed in this episode, I highly recommend both of them and the rest of Coriata's filmography. Agreed. Thank yeah. you all. Thank stay you. safe. Thank and you. talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.